Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Let me read for you, beginning in verse 17 of Luke chapter 6. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. You don't know this, I became a Christian as a young adult right after I graduated high school. Uh, I had heard the gospel uh, clearly communicated multiple times, and I was will tell you, in the course of hearing the gospel for the first few encounters, I was just simply fascinated by all the stories of the Bible. Uh, the healings, the teachings, the miracles, they each just blew my mind. And along the way, one Sunday morning, the, the normal pattern of my church going to pick up some new historical facts or hear about this guy, Jesus, who did miraculous things. That normal pattern of just going to church was replaced by a sense of how terrible my sin is and how glorious a Savior Jesus is. And frankly, how much I wanted Him. How badly I wanted to be with Him. And in a sense, how much I just wanted to be held by Him. And on that unusual Sunday, the trajectory of my life changed while I was seated on the last row of the church I was attending. That day, Jesus saved me. And I loved Him for it. And I don't say this next part with with any negative spirit about me, but but the church I was attending, they celebrated my baptism. And well, after that, they just sort of cut me loose. I would describe it as kind of like how we toss our kids into a, into a lake and we just see if they can swim, right? It's sink or swim time. See, I was asked to do a lot of things at that church. Don't get me wrong. 
But no one really came alongside me at that very sensitive, that very impressionable time in my life. And that set me back a whole lot. I don't know if this resonates with anyone, but where I found myself after about a year into my Christian walk was just plain burned out on church. And because I was, I found myself in a season of life that I by no means am proud of now. Now, mind you, while I was in that season, I thought I had everything together about me. In this season, I'm telling you about, I was in my 20s and I, I, had, I had it all. I mean, my heart was just set on, on bigger and better. Yvette and I, we were living in Austin and we were healthy and we're, we're doing our very best to enjoy, enjoy all the fun that that city might have to offer. I had a great job. I felt like what I was doing was important. In fact, I was consumed with my work and I would jump on every opportunity that would come up just so I might make a better name for myself and maybe hopefully get that next promotion. In fact, compared to most of the other people I graduated with in high school and most of the other people I graduated with in college, and I was rolling in high cotton. And I share this part of my history to ask you this question. Does anything sound wrong with that life? Okay, maybe the only thing that sounds off is the Austin bit. I'll I'll give you that. But think about it. Young, healthy, hardworking, good employer, great pay. I even had my salvation to boot. Sounds like some of the status updates we hear that are so proudly given by parents or grandparents, doesn't it? Those, those updates that end with, oh, he's just so blessed. And I, said, I set my aim on all those things because when I was growing up, I had heard plenty of those proud parent updates. And frankly, I began to learn what others valued. And because I learned what others valued, my values were shaped. See, I wanted this sense of a blessed life. And I had understood that a blessed life meant bigger or better or faster and more. And they sound like words that we might want spoken about us, don't they? Words like, she got promoted faster than anyone. Oh, he makes more than anyone his age that was raised in divine. They live in a bigger house and they drive better cars than, and you fill in the blank. God must be blessing. But is he really? Is that, is that a blessed life? What I want us to do this morning is to set our course to answer this question. What is a life that has been blessed by God? What is a life that's been blessed by God? See, this is a really important question that, that we probably have a bunch of answers beginning to float around in our heads right now. It's important that we grab hold of what's true because what we value today, in other words, what we're saying is important it's going to shape the passion and the pursuits of tomorrow. Those little ears that are listening all around us. And as we begin to pursue the answer to this question, let's remember this morning that we sit under the teaching of the Bible. It's King Jesus, the King and the Creator of all, who's inviting us to hear about His kingdom. And in His telling us about this kingdom, 
we are confronted by a portrait of a different understanding of what a so-called blessed life looks like. This portrait is painted by the words that we're reading, which come from the real-life history that's told to us by a first-century man named Luke. If we remember back to last week, we saw that after an all-night prayer time, Jesus commissions from his group of disciples the 12 men who are to be preachers of God's kingdom that Jesus is bringing to fulfillment on earth. And it's after this time of prayer that we see God's mission now beginning to come more clearly into focus. As we begin, I want you to know that Luke is an excellent storyteller. Now, not in the sense like you and I might understand the storytelling that every time a fisherman tells us it after reeling in a catch, nothing like that. We know those, those fishermen's sto- stories are always, every time the story's retold, the fish just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh, that's not what I'm talking about. What I mean by calling Luke an excellent storyteller is that when he's writing this, he was led by the Holy Spirit to record important details that we should not be quick to overlook. I want us to observe a detail and what's what's really an important distinction that Luke makes that we will need to remind ourselves of as we continue to read along. But I first want to give you a Bible reading tip like I did last week. When you read the Bible, particularly those books that present themselves to us as stories, we should be paying very close attention to all the characters on the scene. Get a few different color highlighters if you like and and give yourself permission to create a, a visual contrast between everyone on the scene. And when we apply this principle... We can see the very, the very first verse that I've read for you. We're studying that there are, in fact, four characters on the scene, if you will. We see he, them, disciples, multitude. I hope you can see that. So carrying on from the paragraph that we studied last week that comes before this, we can conclude these things. The he is Jesus. The them are the apostles. The disciples are the rest of those who have been following the ministry of Jesus. And now introduced to us are these people who, come, who become known to us as the multitude. Now then, with the characters in place in our minds, we return to verse 17. And we can envision, if you will, a, 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 a beautiful picture of diversity as, as people have come and gathered. They're coming from all various walks of life, each coming to Jesus with their needs, with their pains, with their hopes. It's not that different from what's assembled here this morning. A gathering of individuals, each with different backgrounds, bearing our own burdens, each seeking a sense of wholeness. And as we read on, we see that this mass of people had in verse 18, that they had come to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And we still have that question that we started with in our minds. We might simply conclude right now that this is what blessing meant to Jesus. This, that this would be the essence of the ministry that he called the twelve apostles to go and to preach. Because on that plane... 
among the picture of diversity, verse 19, everybody's trying to touch Jesus. Because when they touched him, power came out of him. And when that power came out, they were all healed. Can you imagine that? These people who weren't following Jesus came from everywhere and anywhere. And maybe they were blind and maybe they were unable to walk. Maybe they had a skin disease. You name it. All they had to do was touch Jesus and they got blessed. Once blind, but a man is now returning to Tyre with, the, with his vision to live a blessed life. Once a cripple, but now a woman is ready to run back to Sidon under the strength of her own two legs. Oh, that, that poor baby who's developed a breathing problem from the Judean dust. Healed. i got to ask you something now. How many of you would be up for something like that? I mean, think about whatever it is that ails you. And let's pretend that I'm now just a voice on, a, on an advertisement. Has time taken toll on your body? Do you, get, do you have trouble getting out of bed? Have the doctors told you that you're beyond help? Are the memories of your past too painful to bear? Well, here's good news for you. Whatever it is that has you down... You can be healed. How, you might ask? By calling in now to book an all-inclusive trip to a, a beautiful scenic meadow that is nestled near a picturesque mountain where you and your loved ones will be able to, to make a lifetime's worth of memories as you wait your turn to encounter Jesus. Who's Jesus, you ask? Well, Jesus hails from a small town, and he's an up-and-coming healer who will bless you with the lasting relief from whatever it is that you're dealing with. Don't delay. Spaces are limited. Book now. Well, if anything of what you might be thinking right now, you know that I don't have a future as a travel agent. But more or less, this is what's happening with the multitude. And this opening scene says more about their understanding of a blessed life than, than, what, Jesus, than the, what the Jesus of the Bible says. In fact, this may reveal to us our sense of what a blessed life is too. It's why one of the greatest distortions of the actual, genuine, true gospel of Jesus Christ is what is known as the prosperity gospel. I'm going to give you a definition of what I mean when I say this. The prosperity gospel leads to a belief that financial blessing and health are always God's will for you. Let me issue a caution to you today. The prosperity gospel is a lie straight from the pit of hell. See, it feeds on, on our sinful desire to pursue a better or a best life filled with, with bigger and better. And it's said that, that life can be gift-wrapped by Jesus himself if you just have faith. If you just use positive words, if you have positive speech about yourself and about others. Oh, and if you will make a monetary donation to the ministry of the person who's telling you all about this. Sow a seed of faith, that person might say. And I'll tell you, I tell you this to say, 
that I am aware that I may not be the only voice or only preacher or teacher that you listen to. And I include myself in this with what I'm about to say to you. Be very careful to measure the words you're hearing against the word of God. Be very careful. Whether they're words from me or they're words from the radio or television or podcast preacher you listen to. Our health, our finances, our jobs, every last bit of the details that make up our lives, they're temporary. You might be living paycheck to paycheck, or you might not have a paycheck at all. And that might be true for you now, but it may not be true for you in a year. On the other side, you may have amassed for yourself a great fortune, and that's true now. But that may not be true in a year's time. When I was sensing a call to be a pastor, I I came across a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a, a renowned British preacher who left a thriving medical practice to preach the gospel. And I'll tell you, as I put this quote overhead, it had a profound impact on me in discerning a call to ministry. It gave me one of those aha moments in my life. And I think it speaks to the issue of what makes us happy or what gives us a sense of blessing in contrast to what the gospel is actually about. Lloyd-Jones said this, we spend most of our time, remember, he's a doctor, okay? He's a doctor. We spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. He says, I want to heal souls. If a man had a diseased body and his soul is all right, he's all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a distressed soul is all right for 60 years or so. And then he has to face eternity in hell. And leaving behind his medical practice, Lloyd-Jones is on to something that gets us closer to the blessed life that Jesus is speaking about. He helps us see that every last human being, including you and I, We need more than just a temporary fix that's going to get us on down the road. See, Jesus is healing here at the start. Yes, I know. Yes, Jesus is giving graciously. But what he begins to teach from verses 20 through 26, it begins to counter the people's focus on healing. And he begins to turn everything that they understand, frankly, upside down. Jesus flips our understanding of of blessing in four areas completely upside down. And these are the four that we're going to work through now. Wealth, comfort, fun, and popularity. So first, we're going to look at wealth. The first warning that Jesus gave is about wealth. And in our world, people equate riches with success. People who who make more money are deemed more significant, and money translates into influence. Almost all of us would like to have more money because deep down we believe that this will solve most of the problems that we face in life. And the people of Jesus' day looked at wealth much the same that we do. They actually believed that those who had wealth, who had riches, they had been blessed by God. And because of that, the poor, they had not been blessed. Imagine then the shock when Jesus says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Imagine the shock. And then in contrast, verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. See, Jesus wasn't cursing money as a means of exchange. He wasn't even saying that that people who make a lot of money are bad. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is speaking against is the mindset that is so wrapped up in worldly possessions that we neglect the life that is to come. See, riches, wealth, money, that, that concept tends to attach us to this world. See, many people serve money. And riches are bad when they become your sense or your source of security and they become the the driving force in your life. Wealth is often not a blessing, my friends. It's a stumbling block. And Jesus isn't just talking about our bank accounts here either. He's talking about our attitudes. The person who is poor recognizes that they deserve nothing from God. They also have nothing that can earn God's favor. They recognize the reality, whether we're wealthy or not as we sit here today, they recognize that we are each spiritually bankrupt. Everything we have is an undeserved gift from God. And Jesus is warning that if we put our hope and we put our, our confidence in our bank accounts and we, we put our hope in our retirement funds or we put our, our confidence in our earning potential, that we may indeed amass a, a worldly wealth and all that comes with it. But we will find that we have spent our lives trusting that which does not last into eternity. That we will have put our lives trusting in that which will never ultimately satisfy. We may find that in the end that we have put our faith in stuff rather than the Savior. The next thing we look at is comfort. Jesus says in the first part of verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Jesus is not saying that hunger and famine are good things in and of themselves. In fact, we should be working to eliminate all such suffering in this world. However, physically hungry people, they tend to be focused people. You ever notice that? I mean, think about the times that you've hungered. Have you, when you've gone to the pantry and looked for something to eat, you might be pretty laser focused when you're in that pantry. People who are truly hungry are often more focused. Jesus says we need to have that kind of hunger for the things God considers to be Important. Jesus restates it in in the first part of verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, or you shall be hungry. When we're full or we're satisfied, we stop working. We stop reaching. We stop growing. It's the curse, if you will, of the good enough. Jesus wants his followers to be constantly hungering for a deeper, constantly thirsting for a fuller relationship with him. It's Soren Kierkegaard who addressed the problem with the story. He said this, A duck was flying with his flock in the springtime northward across Europe. And during the flight, he came down in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. 
and he enjoyed some of their corn. He stayed for an hour, then for a day, then for a week, then for a month. And finally, because he relished in the good fare and the safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. But one autumn day, when the flock of wild ducks were were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard. And their friend heard their cries. And so this duck, he stirred with with a strange uh, thrill of joy and delight. And with a great flapping of his wings, he rose in the air to join his comrades in their flight. But he found with all the good fare in which he had partaken, he had been made soft and made heavy. And he could no longer rise higher than the eaves of the barn. So he dropped back again into the barnyard and said to himself, Oh well, my life is safe here, and the food's good. Every spring and every autumn when he heard the wild ducks calling, his eyes would gleam for a moment, and his his wings would begin to flap. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry, but he paid not the slightest attention to them. This can happen to you and me. We can become so comfortable in the world that we become spiritually lazy. Probably the greatest indictment of American Christianity is our comfortableness in the world. We don't see faith that is characterized by sacrifice, diligence, passion, or single-mindedness. You're going to get this for free. I didn't include it in my notes. There was one Saturday I was in a seminary class and uh, my New Testament professor had brought in a professor that he had taught with in a seminary in India. It was an Indian man who was traveling the U.S., and he happened to bless us one Saturday morning. And I was the ignorant American kid who asks this Indian professor, this uh, Baptist minister, what's different about Christianity here versus Christianity in India? And he said this that has stuck with me that I didn't remember till just right now. He says, you all, you Americans make Jesus too cheap, too cheap, too easy, too comfortable. Think about the, the two students in school. One is unmotivated. This student is content, if you will, one student's content with passing grades and they have enough ability to pass without much effort. And then there's another student who loves learning. And that student is less concerned with grades and more concerned with getting an education. The first one reads when they have to, but the other reads for the enjoyment of it. The first one wants to know, what do we have to know to get by on the test? The second is filled with questions because they're interested in the subject matter. Which student do you think is going to excel in the end? Which student is actually going to have an education? It's the one who was hungry, of course. I get the feeling that there are a lot of people in church who simply want to pass. They want to look good to others. They want to feel that they have fulfilled the requirements that they perceive or what's necessary to get into heaven. And once again, the Lord draws attention to the fact that the Christian faith isn't about checking boxes. It's about living in a dynamic and intimate relationship With God. 
The Lord wants us to hunger for a deeper relationship rather than simply being content with superficial spirituality. Now we come to this sense of having fun. And we often hear people saying all the time, I just want to enjoy my life. And these are people who live for weekend parties. They they may do drugs, they may sleep around, they may drink themselves into oblivion. And the only question that they ask in terms of discerning, or if you will, figuring out if they're going to be someplace, the only question they ask is, am I going to enjoy this? Am I going to enjoy it? These people are always laughing and they're always talking about all of their so-called great friends. The problem is, is that their life is absolutely empty. Their life is just like veneer on a piece of particle board. Oh, it looks good on the outside. There's a nice shine to it all. But the inside's absolutely different. The pursuit of pleasure, it's like a drug. Oh, we need a little bit more pleasure to get us to our next high. And Jesus speaks to this idea of a good time mentality when he says on the back half of verse 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Then he adds on the back half of verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I need you to know right now, Jesus is not against laughter, okay? In fact, the Bible tells us that laughter is a good medicine. It's Kent Hughes who writes, Jesus doesn't mean blessed are grim, cheerless Christians. Though some believers have apparently interpreted it this way. It's the Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon who once remarked that some preachers he had known appeared to have had their neckties twisted around their souls. The author Robert Louis Stevenson must have known some preachers like this because once he wrote in his diary, I went to church today and I'm actually not depressed. Jesus speaks against this idea of superficial and shallow laughter that characterizes the world. As believers, our joy should come from our relationship with God. The situation of the world is tragic. People are doing all sorts of of foolish and sinful things to feel good. Sin has just caused havoc in life. My friends, we should be mourning over disease. We should be mourning over injustice that, that, that... Uh, victimizes the weak. We should be mourning over child abuse and battered women and the drug culture and the increase in violence. Five San Antonio police officers shot. How does this make sense? The increase that's in divorce in our country. The loneliness and alienation that, that so many people experience. And certainly we should mourn over the many lost people who will go into eternal darkness Without Christ. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And the reason is this. It's because in the house of mourning, we come to realize just how short life is. It causes us to address ultimate issues. It strips away the pretend happy world in which so many of us try to hide. The house of mourning forces us to consider what is actually important. It points us to the eternal rather than to the temporary. 
And true blessing comes when we're able to look at the sometimes harsh realities of life and rest in the Lord. See, this joy comes from from finding the key to life that is Jesus Christ. This blessedness, it's not a veneer, it's not plastic, it's not superficial. This blessedness brings forth a laughter that is anchored in joy, rooted in security, coming from the, the love of God. It is a joy that does not disappear even in the toughest of times. Fourth thing that Jesus turns on his head is this notion of popularity. And we all see the power of peer pressure in teenagers. We might remember it. We certainly see it amongst our teens. The desire to be accepted and popular can lead kids to do all kinds of dangerous and foolish things. Peer peer pressure isn't only something that affects teenagers, though. There's nothing wrong with having people like you. The Bible tells us that we should have a good reputation with outsiders. However, the question is, what are you willing to do to be popular? Jesus says in verses 22 and 23, Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And he tells us then, in in those conditions, we rejoice, leap for joy. Our reward will be great. The key words for us, is because of the Son of Man coming from verse 22. Jesus isn't saying it's just simply good to be disliked. Some people are disliked, frankly, because they act like jerks. They're, 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 being, they're not being persecuted for their faith, but because they're, they're being obnoxious. The blessing comes when we choose to stand with Jesus Christ and to, and, and, and to stand with others. And because of that, we're going to be rejected for that fact. When people dislike you because you're a follower of Jesus, the Lord reminds us that our reward is great in heaven. We have chosen the right path, and it will lead to eternal blessing. I will tell you, I've had very little experience with being popular, but in those fleeting moments, I have discovered that popularity is just an illusion. Popularity does not last. Those who celebrate you today will just as easily turn on you tomorrow. The only dependable relationship is with Christ. Rather than building for ourselves a network of friends or amassing for ourselves a huge social media following, I I want to summarize for you a life of blessing with a quote from an Austrian preacher from long ago. Live this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And someone says, well, that sounds so unfulfilling. That sounds so limiting. Don't you know what that's going to require of me? Of course I do. But here's something you might need to hear. This is not about you. It's never been about you. And if you live this life the way God intends it for you, you may not be the most popular person in Divine or Natalia or Lytle High School. You may not be the most popular person in our youth group or in, in any of your Sunday school classes. And if it, isn't that, if it isn't that way, Jesus warns us in verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. 
when everyone is singing our praise, that ought to be a trigger. We need to be on guard. We should ask, are we popular because we've, we've compromised or sold out the gospel? We should also ask if this popularity has come with a price tag. It, it is better to be faithful and to be hated by the world than to be popular at the cost of our soul. This brings us to, to this, my friends. The aim of King Jesus is to bring heaven to earth. And in bringing heaven to earth, the work of God is not just to to snap his divine fingers and to change temporary details in an instant. Because that wouldn't get to the heart of the matter. It wouldn't change a thing because all of the outward signs of things being wrong, they may have been not, they may be non-existence, they may be wiped clean, but everything at the core of our existence would remain as rotten as it has always been. Friends, a blessed life by Jesus, a, a, a life that's blessed by Jesus isn't one that necessarily has wealth, isn't one that necessarily has comfort, isn't one that necessarily has fun, it isn't necessarily one that will feature popularity. That's not the king's aim. The king's aim is to transform your heart. That's what he's aiming for. To say that if you are in Christ, he's made you a new creation. Your former ways have died. You live in him. The king's aim is to call men and women to himself and to give to them freely a blessed life where simply Jesus is enough, where he's enough. His atoning work on the cross for you is enough. His provision in whatever means or amount is enough. How might you come to receive this blessed life? Well, you can't unless he calls. I believe he may be calling this morning. He might be calling softly and tenderly, calling for you and for me. Calling for you and for me to recognize that when heaven invades earth, we don't simply receive, we respond to it. We become new creatures in Christ, given new passions with renewed minds to what real blessedness means. Jesus invites you and I to enter into the blessedness of life where he's enough. He's calling to each of us in this way. What does it take? His cross. We're each bankrupt. We can't do anything to earn it. What does it take? His cross. It's what we sing so often. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. And at that cross, grace, God's grace is so free that it's sufficient for you and for me. What does it take to surrender to that king who went to and through a cross for you? He's ready to set your soul right. He's ready to renew your mind. He's ready to transform your entire life. To give you a sense of what it truly means to be blessed. I wonder this morning. I'll leave you with this question. 
Have you surrendered to him? Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.